don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, constructing a Palestinian oral history archive with Hannah Sleman. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Hannah Sleman, who is a Palestinian living in uh, Lebanon and uh, she's a special, collections libra- a, a special collections librarian at, um, at the American University of Beirut, where we are recording this conversation. Uh, hello Hannah. Hi. Uh, so today we will talk about one particular project that, um, that the, the library here at the AUB is um, has been undertaking, which is a Palestinian oral history archive. But maybe before we come to that, um, there is another aspect of your work that I wanted to talk about to to maybe begin this conversation, which is your work related to um, uh, Arabic comic book in, um, in since uh, the 1920s. Could you maybe introduce us a little bit? What is the work you're doing around those uh, volumes? Okay, <clears throat> so the we. We work at the Archives and Special Collections Department, and our job is to collect documents uh, about the history of AUB, Beirut, Lebanon, and the region to the extent possible, and uh, to collect special collections that are of interest to academics, artists, and the general community. And the interest in comic books, I think, started two years ago, when one of our librarians, she's actually the head of the department sitting right there, uh, and the head of the library, Luqman Meho, uh, took an interest in the subject. And they uh, started collecting, slowly looking into uh, the roots of what, what are some of the main titles, what could be acquired in Lebanon, uh, some of the translations, and trying to very slowly build a, build a collection. And then around um, earlier this year, AUB got a donation from the Sawa family to start a comic, comics initiative at, in, uh, in AUB to study the history of comics. And this is where it really took off with a, with a much more active acquisition program. And uh, the most important... So there are two things, two crucial things, the items themselves and their, their novelty, the... And some of the so some of the earliest publications date to the early twenties, and they started as juvenile literature, uh, where you would get one or two pages of comics as an annex to a grown-ups magazine. And then, as the as time went on, uh, they started publishing more elaborate uh, comic strips for children in the thirties, and then in the forties and fifties, it took off to be an industry of itself, where you would have weekly, sometimes up to weekly, uh, comic strip magazines for children. Um, and a couple memorable memorable titles are Sindibad and uh, and Samir, and these uh, these start in the fifties and on. And what's beautiful about them is what makes comics special is that they're a window into a time and place that no other art can give you. So the overlap of text, image, and commentary on an art really they they are a nexus of culture at, in a sense that. You can tap into the the spirit of the time, the questions of the time that are presented in a very subversive way. Uh, questions of, uh, so, for example, in Sindibad and Samir, both coming out of Egypt in the fifties, at the time of 
a vast transformations, questions of identity, Arab nationalism, economic policies, uh, war, biographies, all of these are presented in a, in a very beautiful and sharp and subversive manner. And this is what makes the medium so special, similar to the medium elsewhere and the the Japanese schools, the European schools, and the North American schools, which are now much more elaborate. Comic books in the Arab world had these humble beginnings, and now they're kicking off. Uh, and they used to be produced just for children, and now they're being produced for people of all ages in, in different forms and mediums and tackling different uh, topics. And some of the recent ones, uh, jumping maybe 50 years or more in time, there's Samandal from Lebanon, Tuk Tuk, uh, from Egypt and Mukhbar from Tunisia, and some and, and they beautifully reflect the pulse of of the time and age where they come from. They're really uh, a treat to read and enjoy, and they're also very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I suppose that the uh, especially the, the comic books that are oriented towards children, uh, it's it's a very good example to see how um, commonly we may we may have the the. the the idea, the elusive idea is that uh, what is for children is completely uh, liberated from any sort of ideology or anything, but actually that's the exact opposite. That's where, that's where it acts at the most uh, basic, primal level of the interpretation of the world, isn't it? Exactly, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in addition to what it says about the uh, politics of the time, it says something about the pedagogy of the time and what... Uh, what publishers and writers and illustrators thought they were doing, and it was a very different approach to what child development is and what child what age appropriate meant altogether. So you would have uh, you would have comics that are presenting to children in very subtle ways, sometimes not so subtle, but in gentle ways, speaking to them in their language and using drawings they would find appealing, telling them what an Arab child is in that in that time. Um, so uh, just like you said it's exactly the opposite of free of ideology and, and this is where they uh, and this is why comics are special, they reveal that none of our cultural political productions are free of ideology mm -hmm. and this is where they really come out in a very crude manner, you see like it's as, as straightforward as it can get, what a certain intellectual, artistic, cultural community chooses to address its children with uh, and this is true not only for Arab comics, for for across the board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was talking a little bit earlier about Tintin. I think that's uh, something that's widely read in, uh, well, in particular in Belgium and France, but also in some other places of the world. And uh, typically, you would you would read that as a kid, and then later reread it and realize how ideologically charged it was uh, yeah. uh, so that's always interesting as well the, the, the retrospective rereading that and that makes you understand how you grew up with which vision of the world somehow exactly, mm. exactly. okay well uh, so that's great and so we can maybe now uh, jump to the second uh, and uh, main chapter of our conversation uh, in the in the um, in the existence of this uh, Palestinian uh, oral history archive, uh, and uh, and uh, I think we're gonna give uh, ourselves uh, really the time to to talk about it and to say to both describe it and to I mean to have you describe it and maybe to try to to think of what it means. Uh, so maybe yeah, just as a as a small introduction, can you tell us a little bit of what it is composed? Okay. 
Um, so the story begins with two organizations, um, the Arab Resource Center for Popular Arts, which is a which is a, which is a grassroots community organization uh, that works on creative expression and active learning in the camps of Lebanon, and the other one is an oral history collective called the Nakba Archive. And both were separately uh, collecting interviews with first-generation Palestinians. Initially, this was it. First-generation Palestinians. At This was a moment around the 50th anniversary of Nakba where there was this sudden awareness that we are losing an entire generation of people who experienced Nakba firsthand. Uh, and, and as we're losing them, we're losing this very substantive part of our collective memory. Mm-hmm. And then what makes the situation more dire is that uh, in the in the bigger battle of narratives, but, but also in the world of archives and primary documents, A, the Palestinian experience is either underrepresented or misrepresented, and B, the voice of the the peasants and the refugees who left their their towns and wandered around Kamstown, the region, before they ended up in wherever they are now. These are vastly underrepresented. When you do have Palestinian archives, there, as archives tend to do, uh, is uh, is archive the history of uh, big narratives of states, diplomatic histories, histories of war but not histories of micro, the macro, micro experiences of people. And in the sense, this is what oral history as a discipline tries to do. It tries to respond to this um, this gap in reflecting micro experiences that, that uh, are not included in state archives, for example, or in universities. Uh, so this, the, the two are, or- so we're jumping into why it's important, but uh, Jana and Nakba archives were collecting and uh, they they were collecting over a decade or more even they were going ho- house to house in every camp uh, asking people who do you know who was uh, old enough in 48 to remember what happened and we have about 800 testimonies most of them are on nakba on the experiences of nakba starting from late uh, late years of uh, the british mandate in palestine through the through the 1948 war and up until the early days of uh, living in Lebanon, the establishment of the camps, the UNRWA, etc. But some of them, uh, three collections or sub-collections exist in the Jana archive. One is about biographies, life stories, and these could be those of the 48 generation of their experiences through Nakba, but they also could be of other people of other generations and experiences. Um, we have uh, one about the Near East Radio. We have one about uh, a certain uh, women's experiences in, in the different camps. So it's called biographies. Mm-hmm. Maybe just to 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 be sure that uh, every listeners understand exactly what we're talking about. Uh, for, for some of them, it will be very obvious. But mm-hmm. so we're we're talking basically of the of the Palestinian diaspora that's been evicted from. Uh, from Palestine uh, the, in 1948 when exactly. the UN, the UN uh, impl- uh, enforced the, the creation of the state of Israel. And uh, so when we say first generation of Palestinians, it's the first generation of, of, uh, of uh, refugee of Palestine. First generation of refugees. And when we're talking about camps, it's all those camps of refugees in, uh, in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, uh, the West Bank and Gaza. Right? Yeah, but we're also in it. A nuance in the forty-eight. We're also talking about uh, the the actual war that. So a lot of the stories about the war of nineteen forty-eight mm-hmm. have 
very little to do with the UN enforcement of anything and more of what was actually going on on the ground. So we have Nakba, we have biographies, uh, we have uh, folk tales and folk songs uh, of tales and songs that were circulated before uh, the exodus from Palestine and then carried over to Lebanon. And the final one is Ain uh, al-Halwat, which is the experience of the women of Ain al-Halwa camp in the aftermath of the Israeli invasion of their camp in 1982. In Lebanon. In Lebanon, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, and a movie was made out of this, actually an excellent movie by the Palestinian filmmaker Dana Abu Rahme. It's called Kingdom of Women. I highly recommend it. Kingdom of Women. Um, so maybe if we um, if we look a little bit more closely at those various categories you've been describing, could you could you maybe um, give us almost some examples of uh, of what uh, I mean? There's a thousand hours of of uh, testimony, so obviously there's a lot of them, but uh, uh, maybe describe some situation of uh, that would that would give us a sense of this incarnation versus uh, what you were saying, like the more uh, state. Uh, administrative uh, construction of a narrative uh, rather mm-hmm. versus a more incarnated personal experience okay uh, so what these more most of these interviews because of the questionnaire follow a chronological sequence with uh, thematic uh, areas of focus so what it does in the first uh, chronological sequence is describe Palestine as lived by its people before 1948, what, which no longer exists now. The, most of these villages have been destroyed and this land is now deemed Israel. And what what people do in these interviews is recreate their worlds. They tell you uh, whether or not they had a school uh, in their in their village, where the mosque was, whether, they ha- whether or not they had a river, what people... Uh, how they conducted marriages, funerals. It just recreates a, recreates a place that mm-hmm. is now destroyed. It's almost based a on people's memory. geographic slash ethnographic yeah. cartography of, of exactly. Palestine. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, there was a group inside the who, who did, based on oral history, they, they are the same collective Nakwa archive with the help of other friends and architects. Uh, who redrew the map of uh, Sofsaf, their village, based on people's memory, uh, like a multi-layered map. Uh, so this is what does a, and this is what state archives don't give you. What was the geography and the and w- what were the the networks that this space uh, had before destruction? And then the, and the, the destru- I'm sorry to jump in. Yeah. But the, the destruction is is very important in the sense that it's not just a destruction, as in as in uh, making an environment unlivable, it's it's the absolute annihilation of every single building that composed Palestinian exactly. villages. So somehow, what if if there were runes, the runes would have been able to tell a story of of uh, pre nineteen forty eight, which exactly. is which is not the case anymore. And uh, and um, uh, an organization like Zokrat in uh, in Israel is uh, exactly. is has been has been very uh, as it's been very um, doing a very important work at showing the absolute absence of, of uh, uh, that somehow uh, is a sort of uh, what I would call a self-fulfilling prophecy of, of Israel saying like a land without people for people without land. Exactly. Uh, obviously, exactly. there was people. <laughs> uh, Zakhrat released uh, an image. I forget of which 
town, but a hill uh, compared to view between 1948 and today. And the 1948 one was a vibrant community with homes and it looked like a very much inhabited town and now it's empty land. Mm. So this is what we're doing on the on the narrative level, whereas uh, there would be absolute emptiness for trying to recreate these spaces mm. as remembered by their people. You're building the ruins almost. Exactly. <laughs> And what we're going to do eventually is have them searchable and uh, hopefully render them useful to architects, to activists that are able to make something out of them, like the map that was made or uh, the Ayanak Ba'ab that uh, Zakhrat are working on or whatever might be useful for people. Um, so so you, you gave us uh, these examples of, uh, of what Palestine used to be before yeah. 1948. Could, could we elaborate on, on other kind of yes. testimonies? Uh, the most the most interesting and the most painful of all of these, I mean, of course, they're very different, very personal, different stories, but almost all of them speak of uh, speak of life before 48, whether good or bad, happy or sad, ma- married or single, old or young. And, and this is a very diverse uh, group. And then when the story of 1940, of, of the war around 1948 starts, and in the previous era, they also t- talk about interaction with the British, uh, with the British bureaucracy, whether or not they worked there, what kind of taxes they paid, etc. And that is in one chunk. And the other chunk is how they first heard uh, about the events. Back then, they had no idea that this would start at what now 67-year-old uh the refugee situation how they first heard about the events whether or not there were Jewish settlers and in and around their villages starting from the early waves of Jewish uh, Jewish, Jewish immigrations how did they deal with it how's the relationship with uh, with those immigrants or with uh, Arab Jews at the time and then how things slowly progressed so how the first of the first warnings of uh, of what was about to come How did they realize it? How did they learn about it? How did they interact with it? How did people react to it? Did they organize resistance? Were they too young? Were they too old? What did the women do? What did the men do? And then uh, as we drew, drew closer to the to the crux of the war, whether or not there was a battle in, in their village, whether or not there was a massacre, when did they leave? Uh, how did they leave, or more importantly, why did they leave? This question of why did they leave has been very formative of the Palestinian historiography over Nakba. The Palestinian historians have been working really hard to uh, deny the one of the uh, Israeli uh, claims that it was Arab readers who told Palestinians to leave. It wasn't massacres, it wasn't the wars. So this question of why, uh, and, and that has been, I mean, there's a vast body of literature we can review and we can uh, we can look at for this argument. But then what people remember and why they remember what they remembered. Do, some people do say we left because they told us to, but why they why they remember that uh, is telling of of how a narrative is rendered in retrospect. Mm-hmm. And and the and the role of hearsay, whereas in some cases it was proved that this was completely disproved the the, the narrative that uh, Arab armies told them to leave. But the fact that pe- some people still say that uh, is a very interesting indication of how how stories circulate in a community and how they circulate throughout time and what they come to mean. Uh, and then there's a story of. Where they went to? Did they go on foot, by by foot, or uh, on a boat? 
uh, did they go to Syria first or to Jordan or directly to Lebanon, who they met on the way, whether or not they lost family members, uh, whether these family members died or they were separated and they're reunited. How did you end up in this camp? And very soon they settled to wherever they... We ended up in Al-Hilwe, in Niyumiyya, or in Rashidiyya, or in Nabatiyya, and uh, people's reception. What did you think? So this whole notion of we thought we were there for a week, uh, like when there's a, a 2006 war and people left for a month and they came back. Uh, and then uh, how things kind of start start to normalize, how they start realizing that, no, they are not coming back anytime soon. And how the uh, how UNRWA started its operations, how did they react to it? People at the beginning refused to move out of tents into homes because that meant permanence and they were going back. So how these uh, interactions played over time and then some, some aspect of the Lebanese institutional uh, position at the time when... Uh, when it was decided to build camps and why and how, how people reacted to them. Uh, can, can we address that actually uh, uh, a little bit more? Because, I mean, I think many of our listeners are, are uh, having maybe an architectural background and that's always a very, very interesting question in, the, in how architecture participate to express the, the permanence of the camp or, or not. I know, that, I know that it's a touchy question because somehow there's a lot of... Uh, uh, what I would call a philosophical fetishism uh, around this question, like our yeah. architects, like me, find it very, very interesting when the situation on the ground may be a little bit more uh, down to earth. But I know that I know that in the work that, for example, uh, Alessandro Petit and Sandy Hilal has been doing in a camp near Hebron in in actually improving the condition of the of the camp, I know that it has been raised as a potential problem that to 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 somehow settle a, b- a bit more the, the 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 aspect of the camp through through architecture uh. well this whole question of uh, permanence as opposed to temporality is has always been big uh, what the the interviews do not discuss the architecture mm. element beyond the mood, the shift from camps to dwellings and they often they're often normalized. So people are talking fifty years later or or after. So the reaction to moving into a home isn't as uh, as meaningful as monumental as it did back then. Mm-hmm. But it was meaningful and strong enough to still note that the transition from a, per, a temporary structure to a permanent structure was was created a, cer- a certain shift in their understanding of what the situation is and whether or not they're actually going home. Uh, I would love to hear what Anurwa has to say about it, what people who were involved in, in the construction and the building have to say about it. Yeah, I mean, that's a topic we talked a little bit with uh, mm-hmm. Lin Jabri and uh, her work with uh, Umbra and, uh, and uh, Ismail Hassan in the reconstruction of the of the camp of uh, Nahal Bahad. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, personally, I, I always... Uh, always have a little. Uh, um, I try to be careful with this question because I, I heard before that it's somehow it's always a, a very uh, uh, yeah it could be an academic fetish, mm. but uh, but I think there there remains something uh, something very interesting in how uh, 
everything we do is always problematic. I suppose that's that's maybe the, the right way to put it. Um, but maybe mo moving on um, uh, in uh, this exploration of the oral uh, Palestinian oral history archive. Um, I was wondering if if uh, if you also interviewed some uh, second generation of uh, Palestinian uh, uh, refugees that uh, in and I guess my question is almost more about what it, what is it that they kept from what they learned from their parents mm -hmm. what what it, what what which part of the narrative actually went through and how did it evolve somehow yeah. So no, this this is for the most part first generation. When when second generation uh, Palestinians are interviewed, it's for Al Halwa, uh, the the sub collection on Al Halwa camp. So uh, the the set of questions being asked are drastically different. They're not asking about whether they're a member of Palestine. They're asking about the events in 1982, or folk tales. Mm. Uh, it would be very interesting. But I think the 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 urgency of recording. <coughs> Urgency of recording testimonies of of elders dominated everything else. Everyone was uh, was on a was going crazy, almost trying to. And often you would hear from our partners who did the interview, who recorded the interviews. They would record with someone, and then they would, that person would uh, die a week or two later, and then they would have created a nice bond with the family that they would then go back and give their family a, a copy of the recording. So it was really about being strategic and and time sensitive. We needed to capture the memory of that generation, a generation which is now for the most part lost. Mm -hmm. uh, this archive has the ambition of one day expanding and getting more collections uh, because we do know of there's one uh, project where third-generation refugees were asked to interview for their grandparents of first-generation refugees. And to kind of, and so the, the interviews record this interaction between people who live in this day and age and people who lived in 1948 and the, and the younger generation asking their grandparents what they remember and why. And they often ask very interesting questions like, why did you leave? Why, could you, why couldn't you say other Palestinians stayed? What, what made you leave and made them say? And these difficult questions that... Uh, that really shed light on areas less spoken of. And we hope to expand and incorporate all of these, maybe uh, have a collection initiative ourselves of identifying strategic uh, themes and interviewing people on them. But at the moment, we're, this is the pilot archive. We're doing the, which we'll, I hope we'll get to the, the archiving bit of things, which is a lot of work and a lot of time. Uh, And if we have that hopefully up online and uh, and functional, readily accessible by people, we will then move on to other things. Mm -hmm. um, I guess another question I have is uh, is uh, regarding some potential problems you might have encountered uh, in maybe the very format of uh, archiving the or orality of narratives. In uh, it seems almost counterintuitive or paradoxical. To, I mean, I'm saying that in a podcast, so that's pretty. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, that's, I guess I guess I'm already answering my question, my my uh, my position towards that. But uh, is there is there something? Is there a sort of a, a, a natural obstacles that is created by this uh, parad paradox or, or not? Of course, really? yeah. of course. So uh, the main question we've struggled with, and I think have determined, is that we are not going to transcribe. We're not going to mediate uh, because oral history is not, uh, it's oral. It's not 
writing down what other people said. It's about how they said it, where they looked as they said it. And to whom they said it. And to whom they said it to. And there are already all of these mediations. The questionnaire is a mediation. The camera is a mediation. The person asking the questions who I might or might not like is a mediation. Taking all that into, into consideration, we decided to not transcribe and to, in order to preserve specifically the orality of the media. Uh, as I said, more than half, I said earlier, more than half is audiovisual and uh, less than half is audio. And our solution to that, and this is where uh, the archive, the digital archive stroll come in. So we first digitized all the tapes. There are many DVDs and tapes in different formats. We digitized all of it. And now what we're doing is uh, trying to come up with creative solutions that would make them searchable without writing them down in order to preserve them as uh, an oral tradition. And the answer so far has been... a. Uh, like a plethora of apps and uh, and softwares and tools that are available somewhere. Most are actually open source and they could be used by anyone. And I'd like to highlight one, which is the Oral History Metadata Synchronizer, which is developed by the University of Kentucky. And what it does, it's not the only one, but it's, it's free, it's user-friendly, and it's what we're using, uh, which allows you to segment a certain interview. Let's say the interview is an hour and a half long, you segment it into either thematic chunks or time chunks. So you say, I want my segment to be two minutes long and then automatically uh, tag every two minutes. Or say, I want it to be question and answer, and then it's, it's depending on what you want. And every segment can be described. So if I were indexing our current conversation, I would tag the part about what people said in their, in their uh, narratives as one segment, and I would call it... Uh, people's uh, uh, the, the narratives mentioned in the in the interviews, and then I would tag that that specific uh, segment with the keywords that were used. So I use things like uh, camps, nineteen forty eight war, uh, Zionist forces, Arab army, uh, journeys. I would I would tag it with these keywords and with the internationally recognized subject headings that we use in in uh, classification of material in libraries. I've, and the software also allows me to write a synopsis. So I'd say in this segment, uh, the author talks about da 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 da. Uh, and I can, I can or cannot write a partial transcript, which is the first 10, 10 seconds maybe, just to give people idea what they're, uh, what they're about to listen to. And then we do that for every uh, segment in every interview and 1,000 hours of recording. And you have a fully searchable archive where if a listener doesn't want to listen to the full interview, just wants to get to the part when we talk about comics, they would they would search comics and what they would get is interview with this person on this date from minute one to minute ten. They are talking about this, this, this and that and the comics are, are, are mentioned here. Mm. And, this is a, and this is what really enabled us to avoid transcription. Uh, because as you said, I mean... Uh, I share your position that further interference to there are already a lot of interferences I mentioned some of them but the most the biggest source of intervention is memory hmm. and retrospective memory specifically uh, so there is already so much at play that we want to minimize it to mi- minimize manipulation to the extent possible and on the on the topic of, of memory I would just like to point out that one of the 
major critique of oral history as a discipline is that it's dependent on subjective experiences, it's dependent on memory, which which often fails us, and our memories of what happened last year is defined by our experiences since. All of these uh, critiques are perhaps true, uh, and this is why we're, we do not claim that this archive contains the truth about what happened in Palestine. It contains what people remember, and that in itself is interesting. Why why people... And we have a scholar here in AUB which works on specifically that, the Palestinian community in Yarmouk in Syria, what they remember and why. Uh, for official historiographies, there are other archives. Uh, so this is not... An, uh, we don't see it as an island of, of truth about people's experiences in 1948. It's one of many archives. Each archive tells us something else. We know that state archives are, you know, this whole archival turn, the post-colonial archive is that you never read it as a, as a source of truth. You read it as a, as a partial accumulated sum of documents that were accumulated by institutions for a purpose to build a certain narrative and that were undermined by wars and by, uh, by manipulation, by negligence. So what you have in any archive, whether state or paper or oral, is what people could get their hands on and wanted to archive. So what we end up is always a very fragmented portion of the story. So in the same vein of not looking at the archive as a source of truth, but looking at the archive as a source of stories, one of many stories uh, that do not necessarily tell us what, exactly what happened, but they tell us a whole lot of far more interesting things than what happened. Uh, how people how people remember falling in love, how people remember building building community, how people remember passing through all of these places, and what and how their experiences now shape this narrative. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I tend to believe that the embracing of subjectivity might tend towards something actually must more trustworthy than mm-hmm. than the supposed claim of objectivity, like uh, something like history would claim somehow. So. Yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you you mentioned earlier uh, a similar work, or maybe I misunderstood. I don't know, but a similar work being done in Saida, and I was wondering if there was um, if there was other archives of this sort in uh, in the region and maybe in the world in general, and uh, and also thinking maybe of something we've been talking about uh, very briefly with uh, Ahmed Bakley. Uh, and the work he's trying to do with the uh, with the Palestinian Museum in uh, in Amman uh, about about trying to visualize um, visualize the history of Palestine, but not not under the not under the filter of uh, victimhood. Um, so I'm I'm wondering how all this uh, tend to communicate with each other. So there's. Uh... Shara um, Dumani wrote an article where he called it this Palestine archive fever, where everyone was just collecting. Hmm. Derrida, right? Was it Derrida? No, this is Shara Dumani borrowing Derrida's oh, okay. archive fever, and Shara called it the Palestinian archive oh, fever. I'm sorry, okay. Uh, and yes, there's so much being done everywhere. Everyone's collecting. The NGOs are collecting just because they're most in touch with people's realities in everyday life. The Palestinian Museum is, is building the first monumental institution for Palestinian memory. The Institute of Palestine Studies have been collecting since its establishment for over half a century ago. Uh, AUB and other, Birzeit University, everyone's collecting. The Israeli archives are collecting. So you have all... you have. A wealth of material, some accessible, some not so much. 
Uh, and to the extent possible, everyone's linking up. I really think this is an interesting moment in the world of, of archives in general, where Onurwa just launched a website of its uh, picture and video archives, and some of the things in it are beautiful. Everyone's putting up their material online. People are moving towards more of an open uh, open access policy to archives. And we, we live in a day and age where the digital tools make it very possible for us to link up and for an oral history archive to be complemented by a certain uh, photograph archive or by the, for example, the Palestinian poster ar- uh, project, which is an online uh, platform. It's an archive of the different Palestinian posters that were produced um, by the PLO and others. So there's all of the, there's a wealth of material. Out of it is online. A lot of it is buried in places. But there is a moment where people are, are realizing their significance, they're collecting them, and they're trying to link up. As for oral history specifically, similar to this moment in Lebanon where people were collecting, uh, the same happened in, in uh, Palestine and the same happened in uh, Jordan and to some extent in Syria. And we know of many collections that are there. We're in conversation with these people. Everyone's excited to, to preserve them and make them accessible. Because if they're, if they're sitting on tapes on someone's door, they're going to go bad in a few years, and then it's like they never happened. So there's this impulse to, to digitize, to preserve, to organize, to make accessible. And it's a matter of time and resources. Uh, it will happen, I hope so. Uh, we're trying our best, and the people seem to be very receptive to the idea. Hmm. Well, I think that uh, that let me uh, just uh, uh, that, that that allows me to wish you the best of luck for this uh, for this project, and to thank you thank very you. much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you, Anna. Thank you for giving us the chance. <laughs>